You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. How are you, Anne? Hi, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm good. And I'm wondering how our lovely listener is. Who? Is? This week, it's Fred. Fred? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know how we hardly ever get any email on our radio, mmt at gmail.com, so it's really exciting when we get an email. Yes. Well, this time around, we got not just one, but two emails, and each time it was Fred. Two two different Freds. Which did confuse me a bit at the beginning. And I must apologise to Fred because I've been meaning to get back to him. Um, <laughs> yes, well, Fred did have a point because he was listening to our previous show featuring Alan Kohler. Maybe you'd like to remind us who Alan Kohler is. Alan Kohler is a, uh, a finance journalist of mm. 50 years standing. He started with The Australian. He's worked at The Age. He was an editor at The Age. Worked with the Australian Financial Review. He's uh, on the ABC, currently writes for an organisation called The New Daily. He's... um. He's been around. And also, he's quite open to MMT. Yes. Hmm. Yes, quite. <laughs> and we can talk about this through the, through the show because we're going to continue our um, uh, interviews with Alan Kohler. We'll get around to that. So hmm. uh, he's lovely to speak to, though, Alan. He's got he's got a nice voice. Yes. And um, yes, we will acknowledge, Fred, you're quite right, that the RBA, our central bank, is not really independent from the parliament. It sort of behaves that way because the policy's all written that way, but in legislation it's not independent. Well, that's an, an, always an ongoing discussion. You get mm. these people who say, oh, no, the RBA is independent and they make their own decisions and, and government doesn't tell them what to do because Paul Keating used to set the interest rates. So the connection between the RBA and, uh, the, Treasury. and the Treasury was was openly connected. And, mm. and so there was this phase they went through where they said, right, yeah, we're going to make the RBA independent, independent in... In uh, <laughs> inverted commas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was part of the neoliberal drive to put a wedge between the central bank and the treasury, which we at MMT do not agree with that approach. They, they're, all, they're all part of government. Uh, and the Reserve Bank Governor is appointed by the government and operates under government regulations. And and, and the Governor will be changing up soon. We're going to have Michelle yeah. Bullock yeah. soon. I have to remember not to say Phil Lowe anymore. But in any case, Fred is correct. The mm. uh, the um, RBA is not really independent. It is it is an arm of government. It works with Treasury. It's, it's all under the same umbrella. 
So before we head to the rest of our chat with Alan Kohler, we do have another communicate from Professor Bill Mitchell, who is an economist who was one of the co-founders of Modern Monetary Theory. Right, and uh, uh, this week he's uh, discussing the Intergenerational Report. The Intergenerational Report, which was released on the 23rd of August, 2023. And what this thing does is offer us a 40... 40-year outlook on how the Australian economy might fare in the future. Okay, let's go there. It's time for A Letter from the Cape with economist Bill Bill Mitchell. Mitchell. Hello, and welcome to another episode in my Letter from the Cape. Today's episode is being recorded at the Cape, which is Australia's most sustainable residential experiment in Victoria, overlooking the Southern Ocean. Sustainability is one of those words that gets used a lot, sometimes in a meaningful way and other times in a misleading and destructive way. The CAPE project is an example of the former and is providing a model for future housing design and construction. But this week we had an example of the latter with the release by the Australian Treasury of the Intergenerational Report for 2023. The genus of this exercise dates back to the 1990s when the Conservative Howard government sought ways to depoliticise cuts to net government spending. They came up with the idea that if they released a super scary document every few years, which projected all manner of disasters that they could claim threatened the financial viability of the federal government, then they had cover to avoid meeting real challenges that faced the nation and would require significant government investment, like climate change, public housing, improving our run-down health system, restoring integrity to our education system. The list is long. So every few years we have this media circus with all sorts of leaks and grandstanding from politicians about how the ageing society will require the government to pursue fiscal surpluses. That is, spend less than they receive in taxes so they can save up for the future spending challenges like all those hip replacements. We're getting the budget in much better nick. Treasurer Jim Chalmers. By exercising spending restraint, by returning the majority of tax revenue upgrades to the bottom line, by making modest but meaningful changes to our tax system, and by finding tens of billions of dollars in savings and reprioritisations. The the scale of the challenge, and in particular around the budget, around the spending and tax pressures, that we're going to be under as a, as a nation suggests that we really need to take some hard choices as a country in the future to, to get what the IGR says is going to be a rolling um, 40 years of deficits essentially yep. under control. Yeah. Uh, our government and future governments uh, will try and find the best combination of spending restraint, savings and meaningful tax reform. The problem with this exercise is that it combines truth with fiction and the fiction wins out and diverts our attention away from the real issues. Further, in pursuing policies that the government claims are necessary to stop it running out of money, 
they actually make the problem worse. Let's explore that a bit. The so-called dependency ratio is rising in Australia as it is in most advanced nations. There are many ways to express this ratio, but the one that dominates the Australian discourse is more specifically referred to as the age dependency ratio. What does it measure? It is the proportion of the population who are not working relative to those of working age. So as more people reach retirement age and are not replenished by younger workers, the age dependency ratio rises. That is, more people are dependent on less workers for the supply of goods and services. This is the fact or truth part of the exercise. It is happening and it does matter. But the way it matters is not the way that the intergenerational reports would like us to believe. The government wants us to fear higher taxes in the future, to pay for the increased demands on the health and pension system as more workers retire with old age. They invoke the fear that we will not be able to afford a decent pension system for those who have worked hard but have little private superannuation. They then tell us to solve this problem, they will have to cut spending now and save up for the future. They also tell us that we will have to retire later in life, that is work for longer, before being eligible for a pension. And they propose all sorts of privatisation stunts, like which made our vocational training systems dysfunctional and which have wrecked our tertiary education system and they force more people into private health funds, which rip everyone off with massive subscription fees and diminishing service coverage, all of which just makes the problem worse. How? Well, first, the federal government will always be able to fund first-class health care and a reasonable pension system should it desire to. As the currency issuer, the only constraint on its spending is the available real resources for sale in that currency. It can never run out of that currency. So if there are enough trained doctors, nurses and other medical professionals available, then the government will be able to employ them to service the higher demand for medical services. Second, the actual problem posed by the rising age dependency ratio is a productivity problem. That is, the future generation, our children, will have to be more productive than the preceding generation because there will be less of them supporting more of us in terms of provision of real goods and services. The government has failed on the productivity front. To enhance the growth of a highly productive workforce, requires significant public investment in schools, vocational training and higher education, exactly the opposite to what the government is doing because it is allegedly trying to save up for the future by cutting back now. The problem is that we all believe the fiction and fail to understand that it is just part of the overall relinquishment of responsibility of our government. That relinquishment and the underinvestment in vital public institutions like health, education, public transport and more is now coming home to roost. 
we are all starting to see broken systems and diminished services. How we break out of the cycle of fiction is the unknown. And as long as we are trapped within it, things will just continue to deteriorate. Not a happy vision. I'll be back next time. Until then, see you later and take care. Well, that was economist Bill Mitchell sounding a bit grim. (laughs) I don't really blame him because he has for years been trying to tell us that these intergenerational reports, they're really just a kind of stealth neoliberalism where they pretend that they're planning for the future, which, of course, you do want your government to be thinking about the future and taking stock. But these intergenerational reports, they just get used as a scare tactic, as a scare tactic to tell us that the government needs to spend less because it needs to save money. Yeah, all I'm hearing from this intergenerational report, which was designed by Howard, right, Mm. Uh, and all you can hear about it is, oh, it's going to be a disaster for our children and our children's children. (laughs) It's it's always the focus on the wrong thing. They're focusing Mm. on the money. You know, you've got to save your money. You've got to put your money Uh in. But it's all about the distribution of resources. And money is used to facilitate the distribution of resources. And the government has all the money it, it ever needs. It just needs to figure out how to distribute that so that the resources required to sustain an ageing population are there. And as Bill mentions, that means training and the rest of it. And this is kind of where I like automation. If we free up our population and we've got conveyor belts and robots doing all the mundane stuff, and we've got an ageing population that will need carers, mm-hmm. then those people are freed up to go and do some caring. And and there's going to be a heap of other things. The mm-hmm. climate's going to be falling to pieces and there's going to be all there'll sorts be, of things. There'll be plenty to do. And of course, as you say, the robots are taking our jobs narrative is at odds with the ageing population narrative. Now, which is it? Do we have too many workers or not enough workers? Yeah, yeah. And as I really listened to these uh, heterodox economists, what I'm starting to see is that the single worst thing, apart from burning through your biosphere on the planet, the single worst thing you can do to your economy is to not invest in your future workforce because that is the future of your society. And the single most absurd thing that you can do is not invest in your future workforce because you think you need to save money. Yeah, you know, they're they're, they're focused (laughs) on the money. They're always focused on the money and not what you use money for for the resources. You never need to save when you're the currency issuer. You just produce it. So the whole fixation on collecting numbers in a computer, a a computer that makes the numbers in the first place, is absurd. So if this is what future planning is in Australia, I think we should just go back to stirring the tea leaves. Yeah, and, and... to 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 play this stupid game, and I really wish Labor would start being Labor. I know that they're captured by neoliberalism and they have to play the game and mm. and and say the right words, but find a way, guys. Like <laughs> like, just find a way to stop bullshitting everybody. <laughs> and I'm I'm just going to re- reiterate this point: is this whole fixation on deficits and saving money mm. and being hamstrung, not doing anything because you're you're frozen in the headlights because you're scared of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, it is something that we uh, we touch on when we continue our conversation with uh, with Ellen Kohler. Shall we just hop into it and Let's see what happens? Let's have a listen. 
We pick up our interview with Alan Kohler from last uh, episode when he was expressing his concerns, his grave concerns about uh, the government's response to uh, the impending climate change challenges. And so I think that at some point uh, the governments will, will be looking for the panic button and it's an interesting question as to what does the panic button look like for climate change because at some point there's going to be a crikey, what are we going to do now moment when everyone realises that we're in the poo. Um, the, the floods that we had last year uh, in Lismore and everything, that's going to happen again. And and this year we've got an El Nino. This going to be, uh, um, it's going to be blazing hot this summer in Australia. You know, there's going to be a lot of fires. Uh, is that going to be the time for panic button? I don't know. I mean, I you know, I think we're getting to the point now where where something drastic will have to be done, and and it's, whatever is done is going to be expensive. I mean, um, uh, tons of people aren't getting uh, can't get insured anymore. All the people who are living in the floodplains of Australia can't get insurance. So they're going to have to be when they get flooded, they're going to have to be bailed out, mm. um, or and or moved to higher ground. So that's going to cost many billions of dollars. And there's a whole lot of people living near in forests. You know, they're going to get burnt down. Uh, low lying countries. I mean, this is possibly the biggest problem. I mean, a lot of countries are going to uh, kind of um, be inundated. Uh, so there'll be probably hundreds of millions of refugees. Um, mm. at some point, so they're going to have to be looked after. So, so the cost of um, switching to renewable energy is enormous enough as it, in itself. You know, it's not just electric vehicles and all that stuff, but it's, you know, just basic things of life are going to be expensive. Dealing with the consequences of climate change are also going to be enormously expensive. The government deficits from climate change are going to be uh, epic. Well, you know, if I was to apply my MMT understanding of all that, I would say, well, finding the dollars is not the problem, it's the resources. So if we're talking about people needing to move to higher ground, and it reminds you of being back in Darwin, <laughs> back in the 70s, um, you know, we just, we just, what we need to worry about is there the land and the housing and the construction um, materials and skills, but we can just pay for it because we can, um, the, the Australian Federal Government can issue the currency. Correct. That's right. I'm going to run something past you, and, and uh, I'll, I'll be interested in, on your feedback. This is uh, Anne, just to warn you. This is um, Koleski's theory. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's there's two ways of uh, of money being created in our economy. Uh, one is by the government, and the other is via private banks. So uh, when the government creates money, it spends into the economy, as we know, uh, and if the government spends more than it taxes, it runs a, a, a government deficit, we have a private sector surplus. That means there's uh, extra money in the private sector uh, when a government runs a deficit. The second way money is created is via bank loans. Uh, you go to a bank, you take out a loan, uh, and that's known as horizontal money. When a bank loan is repaid, the amount of money left in the economy is cancelled out. Uh, that bank loan then attracts interest, uh, which creates a negative drain on the private sector balance sheet because the interest costs money. It has to come from somewhere. Although most of the money in the economy is horizontal money, which is to say bank loans, uh, and I regard that as working capital, uh, for 
profit to exist, it needs to come from somewhere. And as bank loans create a drain on the economy and government deficits uh, equal a private sector surplus, it, it occurs to me that private sector profits are entirely dependent on government deficits. Uh, what do you think of that? <clears throat> oh, I don't think it's plainly not true. Um. <laughs> Explain to me. The, uh, we're, I've been running this past a few people and I'm, I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out the, the flaw. I've heard this one before, Alan. <laughs> well, well, look, you know, we, we as I say, we haven't had many surpluses, um, but there was there was a period of um, oh, five or six years of surpluses. Under Costello, yeah. Yeah. The companies seem to banks seem to be continuing to make profits, so I'd, you know maybe it need to be longer than that um, for that to be an issue. But um, no, the, look, the money in the banking system circulates. It's not as if one loan in in isolation. You know, there's millions and millions of loans all being repaid at different times. It isn't a static uh, ecosystem. It's kind of constantly evolving, constantly moving. Loans being repaid and being lent out again, you know, you'd be right if if what we had was one loan and, you know, one lender. Well, if, if we think about it more as a sector. Yes, it's a sector, but it's uh, banks are the um, are what the entire economy rests upon. It isn't, there isn't a banking sector. There is, there is everything. It is everything, um, banking. Well, there's, 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 there's government-created money and then there's private sector-created money. Correct, that's right. So what I'm saying is that... If you look at the creation of money in the private sector, which is to say money created by bank loans, it doesn't matter how many transactions you have. It doesn't matter how intricate or complicated it becomes. It doesn't matter whether you send that money, borrow that money and send it overseas or bring it back in from overseas. Any money that's created in the private sector by banks zeroes out when that loan is complete. And it also then attracts interest, which means it it uh, it more than zeroes out. It leaves a negative balance on the private sector balance sheet, and so that that sector by itself is unsustainable. The economy could not survive, or could not exist, just on private sector loans. So by isolating it, we can see what the net result will be, and then we realise that we do have a system that works. Uh, you say that governments have run surpluses. Yes, they have. But our net result over the past century is a trillion dollars of debt. And nearly, well, pretty much every economy in the world has a net debt situation. Norway might be the exception. I've got to have to look into that exception. So what we see are deficits run through nearly, well, through every economy in the world and private sectors that function uh, and they have to get their currency from somewhere. So I'm, I, I really would be interested to see what I've missed in this equation. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm... Right, have a think about it. Have a think about it. I read, I read it past Bill. He said, uh, "Oh yeah, you're talking about Koleski's theory uh, that he developed in 1930." So I'm not the first person to have. have thought well, of look, this. I, I mean, if you're saying that in order for the economy to function properly, the governments need to run deficits, I don't think that's right. But, but, you know, you're right in the sense that um, we have, on balance, run deficits the whole time. So, and we're probably never going to find out um, <laughs> if it's otherwise. So because I don't think they're even going to run surpluses. So it's probably okay. We're fine. So to put it another way, if we, if we run deficits continuously, and we have, this is, it's normal for governments around the world to run deficit after deficit, 
is the fear of deficits founded? Does it have fa- any sort of foundation? I mean, we ran the highest deficit that Australia ran was post World War Two as a as a percentage of its GDP. Uh, it was followed by uh, a couple of decades of even more government spending to uh, facilitate the returned soldiers and to accommodate um, refugees coming from Europe. Uh, these were regarded as golden decades in Australia. What's the problem with deficits? Oh, the only problem with deficits uh, is that uh, you've got to pay interest on the debt. Um, and so interest becomes a very large, um, you know, a very large uh, portion of government spending. And so... But Stephanie Kelton and, and Bill and everyone says, well, that's fine. You know, the, the interest is just another form of spending and it's just another way of circulating money from the government into the rest of the economy, uh, which is true. So, and that would be fine if there wasn't any political issue with uh, deficits and debt, but there is. Is it a political issue that's based on a misunderstanding of how an economy runs? Look, I suppose I suppose so. Stephanie Kelton's book is is. Uh, right. I mean, I, I, I think she's right. I, the problem is I just I can't see it becoming a part of the political mainstream. Mm. Uh, maybe it should, but, you know, we're living in the real world here. This is the problem. We're living in the real world. Well, who is living in the real world, Kevin? Do you know, uh, I, I, this is coming up a lot. I've just spent a, a, a bit of time away mm. and I'm not living in my own bubble, by the way. I've, I've been away with people... <laughs> they're not lefties, let's put it this way. From the outset, I respect and I really like these people. They put me up and they were lovely to me, etc. but we have very different values. Mm. And Alan says we're living in the real world. Mm. And and I keep on hearing this thing, oh, there's a truth. There's a truth somewhere, you know. There is no truth. <laughs> because what, what, what I'm realising is that People will find their truths, their facts from wherever they want to, okay? A bit like when we were speaking to, uh, I can't remember it was, but they said that uh, a a government will find the economists that suit their ideology. Oh, yes, that was Randall Ray. Randall Ray, you know, and that got me thinking. And I thought, that well, this is what people do. You do. You do find the facts that support your inclination. That is a human tendency. But what we do is we then attach emotions to to our truths. Oh, Okay. And, and and therein lies the battlefield. Everybody's testing their emotions against everybody else on what they perceive to be a fact or the truth. So so Alan says, you know, we're living in the real world, and yet the real world that he's describing is based on a falsehood. The, the idea that the government uh, can't run deficits. Yeah, you know, it's it's like... The logic is that there's nothing wrong with running deficits, but then he says, but then there's the politics, and the politics are the values and the ideologies oh, that are, that make the facts irrelevant, mm. and then and then we have to have to play this stupid game where the truth is irrelevant. You you, you can't pinpoint <laughs> the it. The truth is relative. We're getting very philosophical. Oh, no, now. It's true, but you know, <laughs> no, 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 that that's true. <laughs> Well, what I thought was interesting about that clip with Alan was uh, the way he was describing that dealing with climate change is going to be expensive. And I'm starting to realise how important the language is around discussing economics, because if, Kevin, you told me that something was expensive, I would just think that you were saying that it's a lot of dollars that you're going to need to find, and that's the problem. But then Alan did say, no, when he says expensive, he did agree that it means, you know, finding the resources is going to be the issue for dealing with climate change. I was thinking, oh, you know, in in the boardrooms and in Canberra and so on, where policy decisions that are running the country are made, I just start to wonder if people are using words like expensive 
And then they're sort of leaving it to the listener to decide whether the person meant finding the dollars or finding the resources. And I just feel it's so important to clarify what you mean when you're talking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, look, expensive sounds like dollars, doesn't it? You know, mm. um, if, if you were going to say that it's difficult to find the, the resources. Just say that. <laughs> yeah. Just say, well, you know, we don't have enough people. Because a lot of people will hear that in the public discussion and go, oh, yes, we, we have to somehow find the dollars. Yeah. And, and if something costs more than a whole bunch of submarines, uh, does that make it expensive? And on the other side of that, it doesn't matter if you've spent $300 million on submarines. That doesn't stop you from pulling out the dollars to spend on climate mitigation. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as we keep on saying, money needs to be considered in terms of its inflationary effects and its well-being effects. Mm. We don't care what the debt is. We don't care what the the number amount is. But speaking of numbers, there's some interesting ones that were produced by Randall Ray, who is one of the co-founders of modern monetary theory. And he and Yeva Nassissian, they wrote a paper called How to Pay for the Green New Deal back in May 2019. Pre-COVID, pre-COVID, yeah. yeah. This was for the American situation and this was leading up through the Bernie Sanders campaign. And... In a Green New Deal, which is basically how we want to approach uh, transitioning the economy out of carbon and so on, um, they were saying that you'd put a job guarantee in there and that in America would cost 1% of the GDP. And then if you're... So so I'm going to touch on that. 1% (laughs) of GDP would eliminate poverty in the United States. That's right. And if you're going to go for 100% renewable energy, that would cost 2.5% of GDP. So that's a pretty major thing to transition to. Yep. And if you're going to decarbonise the entire economy, including getting people out of their gas-guzzling vehicles and whatever, that would cost 5.5% of your GDP. Yeah. That adds up to about 9% of GDP. And that's quite a big amount because if you, for example, go into a recession, you can lose 5 to 10% of GDP just to give you yeah. a feel for how you're redirecting resources. But this would be a positive redirection. And in World War II, America was spending, to prosecute World War II, they were spending around 50% of GDP. So it doesn't even cost one-fifth of what it is to go into World War II to change your economy into a decarbonised economy and, as you say, eliminate poverty. Yeah, and the only thing that's stopping that is identifying a crisis, you know, and so that you see World War Two and you go, oh, they're throwing bombs at us, that's a crisis. Bit of motivation there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the, the whole problem with the climate change is because it's gradual, they can't see the shocks, you know, and, and we heard Alan speaking uh, at the very beginning of his interview talking about, you know, when do you hit the panic button and, and what is going to trigger an emergency response from a government. They just seem to be travelling along, you know, if they're dodging bullets, they might get a little bit more um, serious about this, but you don't want to be going to that stage. You just want people to have a brain in their head and understand this is serious, Mum. This is So ah. anyway, it is doable. Let's have a little, let's have a little break yeah. just to ponder on that and uh, we'll come back with a, a bit more of uh, some interview with uh, Alan Kohler, which is a bit more lighter and breezier, I must say, which is, which is nice. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us.
listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au So that was um, Devo with uh, It's a Beautiful World, Mm -hmm. but not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Now Devo are a very interesting band. Uh, Devo stands for Devolution and and that band came out of of the the student protests. Uh, There's the Neil Young song, Four Dead in Ohio. Well they were students around that time and Students got shot and and, and they mm-hmm. formed this band called Devolution. And they're coming to Melbourne. They're going to be here on the 1st of December and I'm going to see them at Flemington. <laughs> You've been getting around, Kevin. Well, well, I was considering going to see them in Portugal. I've, I've done that once before and, and now they're coming to Melbourne, so that makes it a lot easier. But you have been getting yourself to some gigs in a odd little way lately. Yes, yes. I've been uh, I've been uh, back behind the lighting console doing uh, doing gigs with Ed Cooper for the first time in ages, and it's been really good. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're rediscovering your, your lighting um, skills. You, you rock into a gig, and I haven't done a gig in a while because I've been a handyman for quite some time. But mm. in a previous life, I was a lighting person and um, got back, back behind the console. And uh, It's very creative. Yeah, mm. and he's playing so well. So uh, And I've got a few more to go, down to Menian. Tomorrow night, and then um, I'm doing one up in. I, I do 
have to reel him back into Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's that's been good. So nice to get out and around. So so it is a beautiful world for mm-hmm. some people sometimes. For some of us sometimes. Yes, yes. But, but uh, Devo are always tongue-in-cheek. There's a cynicism to them. Where are we at? What's uh, What are we talking about, Anne? I think we should get back to Alan. He had a bit to say. Um, so we'll do that. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, a couple more snippets with uh, Alan Kohler. We continue our conversation with uh, a financial journalist with more than 50 years' experience, a man who started out at the Australian back in the late 60s, was editor of The Age, has worked with the Financial Review and uh, currently commentates on the ABC as well as writing for the New Daily. This is uh, journalist Alan Kohler. How does it go, someone in your position, who would seem to have a fairly progressive understanding of the economy, working in a very orthodox environment. For instance, I noticed that you were working at The Australian for quite some time. You've left The Australian, you're now working at The New Daily. I read your stuff regularly. You seem to have a bit more freedom uh, to express yourself in The New Daily than you might have in The Australian. Oh, no, I had a lot of freedom in The Australian. They didn't tell me what to write. Um, I did. I felt a bit out of place there, but I, that's about it. I mean, they were fine. Um, so I've got, no, I've got no complaints about the Australian. Look, uh, the fact is I'm a journalist. I work at the ABC mainly. You know, I haven't been infected with um, orthodox economics from university, which um, is possibly the reason I'm progressive. But look, I know a lot of progressive economists who, you know, highly trained. Um, you know, it's just a question of your, I guess, your point of view, you, you know, sort of uh, where your heart lies. Um, what sort of person you are. Do you think um, progressive economists get a fair go in the Australian media? Australian media tends to be dominated by uh, Murdoch uh, to some extent, you know. So the media is a, are businesses, so they tend to be they tend to be more conservative. I mean, the, the ABC is a bit of an antidote to that in the sense that it's not a business and, um, you know, it tends to be more progressive. So, look, I, I mean, I, I think on the whole... Yeah, progressive economists get a fair go, probably, you know. I mean, maybe it tilts a little bit towards the other way, conservative. But, um, I mean, the economists that get quoted most are the, those who work for banks. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty focused on trying to pick what the Reserve Bank's going to do and, you know, trying to predict um, retail sales and unemployment. And, you know, they're very focused on the kind of the data and the uh, the ABS stuff. So, uh, the, and they get... Fo- um, they get quoted a fair bit, um, but as for the more kind of um, philosophical ideas, uh, I, I think it's reasonably even, I suppose. Mm. Uh, Randall Ray explained it, uh, to us in an interview just recently that um, uh, that organisations choose the economists that suit their platform. Uh, so, you know, if you're a conservative government or a conservative organisation, you're going to choose a conservative, orthodox economist to uh, justify your position uh, and that uh, the same might be true the other way around. It's just that there's not many heterodox or progressive organisations around that require um, more progressive economists. Uh, for instance, I mean, uh, do you think it might be uh, handy if Q&A invited uh, Bill Mitchell on to have a bit of a say one day? That'd be great. I think that'd be, I'd, I'd definitely watch that. That'd be good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's great. I mean, he's look. Bill's a very interesting guy. He's got lots of interesting ideas, and you know, he um, he definitely should be on Q and A. You work at the ABC, uh, don't you, uh, Alan? Any chance you might be able to put a word in? 
Oh yeah, I will. Okay. I mean, they don't. They don't ask me. <laughs> we know you have influence. <laughs> I'm sure you rub shoulders with the right people. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really ask me who to put on Q and A, but. <laughs> we interviewed financial journalist Alan Kohler in July of 2023, and Anne wraps up the interview asking him a question about the recent surplus. I was listening to a talk that was given by our Federal Treasurer, uh, Dr Jim Chalmers, and that was at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy on May the 31st, 2023. Chalmers said that one of the three main components of this Labor budget was rebuilding fiscal buffers. And then he also said that he has banked 87% of something he's calling the upward revision to revenue. And I was just wondering what your take was on what an upward revision to revenue might be and what he might mean by banking this revenue. Do you have any interpretation of that? Oh, yeah. Well, so the upward revision to revenue is simply um, what revenue turned out to be uh, versus the mistake that they made when they did the forecast. So they, they do a forecast mm-hmm. in the budget uh, one year, you know, as to what they think the revenue is going to be and then they budget accordingly and then um, they, at the end of the year, they figure out what <laughs> what it turned out to be and um, it had to be <laughs> oh, upwardly right. revised because it was wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this case. So this is their surprise surplus. Yeah, yeah, that's it? right. So <laughs> it turned out that, you know, the surplus or the, the, the revenue turned out to be more than they expected because of um, – uh, better revenue from iron ore companies in particular. It was really kind of commodity-based um, mm. uh, revenue. But also the other, re- the other reason that they got it wrong was because um, uh, unemployment was less than they expected, which meant that they got more income taxes from people being employed and had to pay out mm. less money in um, the dole. That was, you know, a big reason for the upward revision, as he puts it. And um, the question of whether you bank part of it or or not, simply has to do with uh, whether you increase spending uh, in line with the the nice surprise you get in the budget. You know, obviously, you know well ahead of time that that's the case. You you could announce your next budget um, having having the same uh, deficit or surplus as you predicted a year ago uh, by simply spending more. Uh, but so what mm-hmm. he said was, and he what he did was that he only spent 13% more uh, than previously expected. Right. And I see. 87%, okay. 87% of the extra you know, money that came in uh, was not spent. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. This is where I get confused by the language because when, when he says we're banking the money, to me it sounds like we're saving the money. And then I sort of start to wonder, well, where is he socking this money away? Because you know, the MMT understanding is that the government doesn't need to save in order to spend. So what you're saying is when he's saying it's he's talking about banking, it's really this change of how much you're spending, but it's not talking about saving. Well, the government does have a bank account at the Reserve Bank, obviously, and, you know, it does have money in it. Mm. It, it may be that they banked it, or it may be that they're simply uh, reducing the amount of um, bonds they have to issue. Uh, so it's you know banking the, the using the term banked is 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 kind of a um i don't know a metaphor in a way mm-hmm. it's a question it's a question of whether they offset that surplus against uh 
the national debt or whether they apply it to more spending, I guess. And, and uh, we'd question whether they need to put anything towards paying off the debt because we don't regard it as a debt. Um, anyway, uh, look, you've been very generous with your time. Alan, uh, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I think we've well, I think we've pretty well covered everything, including my uh, my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to tease out whether you're some sort of dope smoking hippie in your early days, Alan, but you gave me nothing. You gave me nothing. So, oh, well, okay, all right, I was. <laughs> I'll put that in there. The lost years in Perth. We'll put that down to a uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time, Alan. Thank you, and it's been a pleasure. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. That was our tell-all interview with Alan Kohler. Yeah, so if you didn't um, understand what we were referring to at the end there, at the beginning of the the interview, which was two weeks ago, we discussed his early life driving combi vans around Western Australia and, uh, you know, stuff. (laughs) Yeah. In that last segment, we got back to this issue of language again. I seem to be harping on about that a bit, but I was trying to get to the bottom of what was going on when our Australian treasurer, Jim Chalmers, back when they were doing the budget in the middle of the year... Um, What did he mean when he was saying that he was banking the surplus? And what we tried to do is to provide the cost of living help and invest in the future, but also bank uh, a huge proportion of the upward revision to revenue, 87% over two budgets of the upward revision to revenue we've banked to the bottom line. First of all, what does Jim think he's doing with this surplus? Can I, what can, is he can, actually doing? And yeah. then what do you know, mainstream commentators like Alan think he's doing? Well, so if you think from orthodox uh, terms, which we don't, and so we struggle with this stuff, the, the uh, orthodoxy says that a government can only spend um, uh, within its means. And at the moment, it's got this, this debt, a national debt that it's lugging along, and it needs to retire that debt. So if it runs a surplus... The, uh, the orthodoxy says, I oh, will apply some of that surplus to the debt and we'll reduce the debt. That means we'll have to pay less interest and, uh, and, and we're heading in the right direction. But, you know, when Alan was describing what was going on, it was slightly different from that, which was really quite interesting. Jim Chalmers, when he said, I have banked 87% of this upward revision to revenue, meaning this surplus that fell out of the barrel, as we say, whether it's a surplus or a deficit, at the end of the year when they're looking at what actually happened with the budget, that's just a number that falls out of the barrel. They don't actually know until a few weeks or months in advance what's really going to happen because what they've got to do is add up all the numbers to do with the incoming money, the money coming into the federal government via taxes and other revenue, and all the spending, so then they add up all the money going out. Which varies according to employment or royalties or all that sort of stuff. You don't know what it is. You You don't know what it is. And then at the end of the day, they figure out whether they've got this surplus or deficit. So when Jim Chalmers says, I've banked 87% of the upward revision to revenue, he is not saying he's saving money for a rainy day. What he's doing, I think, is that he is deciding, or, you know, the whole government's deciding, not to spend when we desperately need it, for example, to do climate mitigation and to do our decarbonisation and all of those things. They're saying, oh, we're not going to spend the money because if we do that, we're going to end up not with a surplus. We're going to end up with a deficit. If we end up with a deficit, 
we are going to have to uh, issue more bonds, which of course is an optional thing that they do. And if we're issuing more bonds, we're going to have to pay more interest. And so what he's saying is that we are willing to sacrifice the Australian people to this poly crisis so that he can stand up in Parliament and say to a bunch of people sitting on the other side of the room, we have made a surplus, therefore we are good economic managers. The Liberals and Nationals made a mess of the budget and we are cleaning it up. Our responsible budget management is rebuilding our nation's finances and leading to smaller deficits and less debt and lower interest costs. And we are on track to deliver the first surplus in 15 years, Mr Speaker. And what's clear is that we wouldn't be anywhere near a surplus without our spending restraint, our savings. In fact, Mr Speaker, those opposite delivered more consecutive deficits than any government since the 1920s. They delivered the biggest deficits since Federation, Mr Speaker. There was a decade of debt, a decade of deficit and a decade of disappointment. Responsible economic management and spending restraint. We take responsibility for cleaning up the mess that they left of the budget. You, you and I understand, and our listeners, most of our listeners, mm. if you don't understand this, pay attention. <laughs> we do harp on about it. We do harp on about it. <laughs> Deficits do not matter, you know, but oh. it's this obsession with chasing numbers without yeah. without with the look- surplus game. And see, I think we need to break the surplus game. You know, Kevin, you and I need to get onto this, and Fred, Fred, I think is already onto this. Okay, but we know that Alan is MMT friendly, mm. but he's not all the way there. He, he's still got a foot in that camp. He says point blank, uh, the deficits um, matter. Uh, and he's he's kind of like kind of trying to entice him across. Alan, come across, come all the way, you know. Like it's <laughs> it's it's okay. <laughs> but he's he's been a financial commentator for fifty years in mm. the orthodoxy, and so for him to be it is hard to break out of the surplus game. Yeah, and he actually explains it to himself when you go back through that interview and have a listen to it. You know, I say, what's the problem with deficits? He goes, oh, well, there's nothing wrong. Well, deficits are bad because they attract interest. And then he says, but the interest doesn't matter because the interest is actually just the government spending more money into the economy. Incidentally, just on the orthodoxy with that mm. with that interest, the government bought most of the bonds, which means they're paying the interest to themselves. <laughs> it's a circular game. It cancels out. So so the interest is, is rubbish as well. Yeah. So you can tell your friends from us that probably surpluses are doing more harm than good. And if you're wondering how to tell whether they're doing more harm than good, strangely enough, the answer is you go and look at whether or not you have genuine full employment. And the reason you go and look at that is that will tell you whether or not the government is spending enough. And the other thing is, like, we've been running deficits for, for decades and decades and decades. And, and there's always this, this, this outcry about oh, how bad deficits are going to be. Well, we've been running them for forever. How bad is it? It's not bad at all. We just had COVID and even a Conservative government racked up a deficit because they can, because it doesn't matter. We're nearly running out of time here, Kevin, okay, but I, I did good. want to I was mention... freaking out a bit there, <laughs> I did want to mention that for people who want to get to know their MMT, the economics that we follow a little bit better, something to watch out for is going to be a documentary called Finding the Money, which is going to have its world premiere 30th of September in the US. So I hope that's going to be coming to Australia. Right, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's like an, an MMT 
documentary. Yeah, it follows Stephanie Kelton, who wrote The Deficit Myth. So we've tried uh, MMT music, as we explained it towards the end of the show, and now we're going for <laughs> MMT the movie. MMT the movie. You beauty. It's coming to a theatre near you. <laughs> anyway, we better go because uh, there's other shows uh, other than us, but Fowler's coming up next with the Vicky talking about Chile. Very interesting place, Chile, but um, we've got to go. Otherwise, we'll get into trouble. Uh, see you in a couple of weeks' time, and bye. See you, see you then. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis or the Ricardian Equivalent or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get music. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.